You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer, and for this episode, we're speaking to academics who are also activists. You know, in my time as a higher education journalist, I've been struck by how much an academic's work feeds into their sense of self, their identity, their purpose in life. Doctors might be another workforce with similar personal connections to their work. And though not a job necessarily, activists share that inherent connection to a mission and an agenda that academics do. So maybe activism and academia have some natural overlaps. And while the knowledge that scholars have about social issues would be invaluable, does the day-to-day job of publishing, teaching, and committee work render it impossible to do activism? Coming up, we'll hear from John McKendrick at Glasgow Caledonian University on the work he does to fight poverty and how he thinks academics are uniquely placed to do activism. And I think we have to have people that are that bridge, that bridge between the the academic community and maybe the complex ideas and those that are able to translate those ideas into practice. So I think it's, it's incumbent upon the academy as a whole to make sure that activism is there. But first we'll go to a pair of scholars who wrote the book on activism in academia. Colette Kahn is an associate dean and professor in the School of Education at the University of San Francisco. And Eric de Molinaire is an associate professor in urban schooling in the Department of Education at Clark University. They co-authored the book, The Activist Academic, Engaged Scholarship for Resistance, Hope, and Social Change that came out in 2020. In this interview, they talk about their passion for social justice and how systems within universities can often stifle the community-based work that stands to benefit most from their scholarship. Colette and Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the Times Higher Education podcast today. You guys literally wrote the book about activism in academia, so I'm very pleased to have you on this episode. Could you start out by telling us a little bit about kind of how you found your way into academia and how that overlaps with the social justice work that you do or how it perhaps was a catalyst for the social justice work that you're doing? As you are both gesturing to each other to give the other one the floor first. I guess I can start. Um, So I guess I would say I consider myself a reluctant academic. I went to grad school after I was um, a teacher for several years in the San Francisco Bay Area and a soccer coach because I was um, frustrated with what I saw happening in the schools where I was teaching and started working with some folks to start imagining how could we design and create better schools for students. Um, And so then I went back to grad school with the goal of really learning a lot and trying to figure things out, not to become an academic, but to start a school. Um, And I did that and I started a school in East Oakland. I only sort of shifted into academia after being actually taken out of a school for social justice when the district started closing all the schools and it was a pretty uh, rough time and the politics were really intense and it was just being a director of a school a public school in Oakland 
was highly political. The state had just taken over the Oakland public schools. So there's a lot of contention there. And part of it is I escaped to academia in a way to be able to speak my truth and not feel like I was always playing um, the, the, the political game that I had to dance between sort of speaking truth you know, and I got called out because there was some controversy in the neighborhood where we were, where some of the white residents were calling our students, uh, basically because we had a bunch of black and brown students in our neighborhood, um, they were basically blaming all of the crime on our students. And so I called that out. And then I, then it was just like a huge political uh, battle. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I didn't want to not speak out against racism, but I had to, in some ways, watch what I was saying when I was the leader of a school in ways that academia freed me up, uh, at least on some level, or at least when I went into academia. I didn't expect to stay in academia, and so I felt like I was going to use academia. And in part, it was my mentor who wrote um, the foreword, Marco Okazao Ray, who, who basically, you know, because in, in my mindset, I was like the academia is this ivory tower, it's out of touch, and my work is really about how do we create change, how do we create more social racial justice in our communities, and I felt like, and that was my experience in higher ed previously, was that it was a little bit removed, right? The teacher education programs that I was familiar with in the schools didn't connect with schools, weren't trying to make change, Um, but my mentor Margot was like, Eric, you have a, a mistaken view, like, one of the things that higher ed does is it gives you a lot of flexibility and freedom with your time, and you can choose how to use that. And so, you know, I took that to heart and sort of tried to figure out a space where I might be able to do work to me that was the core of what I wanted to do, and then get a paycheck from the academy on the side. Um, and so that was a little bit of it, but, you know, it was a little more complicated than that, and the negotiations, you know. The expectations in academia weren't just, even though Margot was right that I, you know, had to be someplace maybe 14 hours a week in terms of teaching and meetings, and I had some shape to how to control the rest of my time, there were other expectations that I had to do with that time. So it wasn't like I could just only work 12 hours at the university and then do activist work. So you were kind of escaping the the politics of this local school system that you were that you were working in in California and you probably found yourself in a whole different world of of politics and academia which which I want to get into um Colette you come from a family of educators correct so perhaps maybe the the shift into academia was a bit more natural for you um I think that the shift into teaching perhaps I don't uh no one in our family was in academia per se if we wanted to find that as higher ed. Um, my great-grandmother was a one-room schoolhouse teacher. Uh, my grandfather, his brother, his brother's partner, his wife, um, were all teachers. And my grandfather became an um, assistant principal. My grandmother was a math teacher. Um, so mm-hmm. teaching was something that I think, uh, and that I'm the oldest cousin um, in the family. Um, and so I think there's something about teaching and what that looks like and what that means and what it should do in the world, particularly when we're talking about among black families, black young people, um, you know, for, for almost all of them, um, teaching black people was what it was about. And that was kind of the a, a path towards liberation. It was a path of liberation. Um, 
<clears throat> both of my parents were the first um, among the first class of affirmative action um, folks coming into UCLA Medical School um, when they were first making a push and they UCLA went around the country um, identifying folks who were in um, the sciences. My mom was a chemist and my dad was an engineer um, to try and and see what it means to, you know, come into the medical field. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know if I knew always that I would be an educator, but I was always an educator, whether it was teaching my sister how to, to read and write or it was, you know, coaching or working at a camp. It was there were always young people. Um, and when I um, had my first, you know, so-called official teaching job, although I certainly worked with unhoused youth in other ways, um, I taught for maybe a year or so and then worked with some folks to bring in our first cohort of black and brown youth into this school, like a, not just one or two in every grade, but like a cohort of folks. And they were, of course, stunning academically in every way in my heart and mind. Um, and it was a struggle for them because the school expected them to adapt to the school, not that the school would make space um, for conversations that were critically important and that also really saw them, right, as, um, you know, brilliant academic minds. And so when I actually first went into, um, went to grad school, it was really to try and design a school that was by and for black people. And, you know, historically, of course, <laughs> black spaces, but they always lack funding. They lack um, support politically. They, you know, anti-black racism is, is as full as white supremacy is. <laughs> They're tools of each other. And so <laughs> it touches every, every aspect. But when I got to graduate school, um, what I found was that I loved teaching um, race theory um, I believe both Eric and I, actually, Eric, I don't remember, um, got to teach with Pedro Noguera in his um, race and schooling course. And what I saw in that class were black and brown undergrads, not all of who were young, whom were young people, um, really find, um, I don't know, it was like, it was like an aha moment, like, it's not me, really understanding race theory and understanding kind of um, how to make sense of race in the world. Um, that felt liberatory in that moment, right, for them. And so uh, I, was, I was hooked. I, it, I believed in, and, you know, part of the reason why uh, I've known Eric for so long is because I believe in that vision, of course, of K-12, but my heart was in um, undergrad and graduate education, folks who have been thoughtful about the world and knew that something was wrong, they, that you know, no one taught them in K-12, but that they had access to an undergrad and graduate. And I love folks like David Stovall, who uh, brings race theory to, you know, the K-12 level as well. But my heart was was really in this place. Um, and, and even now, I get to be involved in a project that we're calling Pop-Up University in San Francisco, working with Black San Francisco adults who would like to learn how to be uh, community activist researchers in their community around anti-black racism and watching as they experience learn about and think about race theory is like you know it's just like a, it continues to be a gift to be witness to that and then for them to kind of think about well then what do I want to do right like what action do I want to take in the world what questions do I have that community activist research could help me understand better um, that for me like 
the academy itself can be an activist, righteous space, just in the kind of consciousness raising or I don't know. I don't like that term because it's like people's consciousness was down here. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, because of academia, got raised up. I'm not saying that. But it's like, you know, understanding and thinking uh, and, and reflecting on having time to reflect on the role of race in the world. Um, that's a gift to be. Able, Is it kind of putting able. putting some theory behind that, putting some theory behind the action that people are doing on the front line? Uh, I mean, I think people generate theory as they're living their lives. And so having the opportunity to really, um, one of my colleagues, Emma Fuentes, in her uh, first year class, she has them write their own homegrown theory, right? And so one student, for example, wrote a theory of driving while black, and he was like, academia while black, right? Like, they're, they're living it, they're living their theory, right? They just don't always have time to stop and reflect and name it. And, you know, academia is fond of, of a lot of things, but if not just getting to name something <laughs> and put their name on it and you have to like but you have to have time for that right so i'm not saying that they were lacking theory and all of a sudden they came to theory but they now have time to kind of think about and generate and, and make sense of those experiences and that that's a joyful thing correct me if i'm wrong but did you did you guys meet in san francisco did you meet at berkeley is that correct okay how did your choice of where you are choosing to work now or where you chose to begin your academic career with graduate school, um, how much did that play into perhaps this, this mission that you have of activism? Is the choice of the institution, does, is that really important to you in terms of being able to, to continue to do this work? I think that academia, I mean, Trisha Hersey just released a book that's brilliant. If you know, I highly recommend it, Rest is Resistance. And in it, she she just, this critique of academia as an oppressive institution is just spot on, for me anyways. It's exactly how I experienced it. I continue to experience it. But there's this irony that you also, it's also a space where, and Eric was talking about this earlier, where you have a lot of uh, control over your time. And for me as a black single mother, you know, uh, and I've certainly written about it, so I don't need to talk about it here, but I will just say that what academia allowed for me was the opportunity to not be divorced from my family, right? To spend time and be with my daughter as she grew up and also be teaching race theory and also have time for myself to kind of think about what it means to be black in an anti-black world. It allowed a lot of a lot of things, but it you know as an institution, it is certainly steeped in its own you know version of harm, and so it was also and continues to be a, a really hard place to be. But I would you know say that in terms of uh, controlling my time and thinking about being able to, um, and Remy and Laura wrote about. Um, kind of being able to steal away the resources of a very wealthy institution. I mean, institutions have billion-dollar endowments. And so, you know, funding is just really sitting there that you can kind of launder into schools, launder into community centers, launder into spaces that are really struggling. And, like, you know, no one should have to 
ask for money from an institution that has way too much. Right? Like, you know, uh, Jack Halberson talks about like, it's not a problem of being unhoused. It's a problem of some people having too much house. And here I think it's, it's not a, a fact of schools having too little money. It's that's not the problem. The problem is these institutions that have so much money and don't want to let go of it and think that they are uh, somehow uh, deserving of it. And then they're going to, you know, if you ask and beg on your knees for it, they'll give you a little bit here and a little bit there. And being in that institution from the very beginning was always about laundering that money. I mean, from the first conversations Eric and I had, we're like, okay, well, there's a grant over here and there's a grant over here and the school needs this. Let's figure out how to like mix and match to make that happen. Like that's, that's always been a part of it. And so I guess to answer your question, academia was for me as a black single mom, it was a place where I could find liberatory spaces to be able to do the things and the work that I needed to do without struggling and suffering, right? Like that, that shouldn't be the purpose of my life, right? Like to my ancestors didn't go through what they had to like, they bought the ticket, like the tickets, (laughs) my journey is already paid for and it's not to suffer. And so there's that, but then also there's a real kind of activist lens that you can bring to it about how you are um, you know, well, Remy and Laura call it reparative theft. I, I've always kind of thought of it as laundering money, you're just moving it. Um, but to to make that movement happen in in a real way for these institutions with these billion dollar endowments. Mm-hmm. Eric, what do you think? <laughs> Eric, what do you think? And you are now on the other coast. So in terms of Clark University, what, you've made that jump. And I know you're not at Berkeley anymore, but how was that move and how was that choice to to go to Clark? Well, I mean, to build on what Colette said, I feel like, you know, I used to work for the state, right, as a K-12 teacher um, in public schools, which was, has a deep, long history of colonialism and white supremacy and capitalist oppression and all kinds of things, right? And higher ed, now I'm in a private institution, but it, it doesn't feel that different for me in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's, but it's not working for the state. It's working in a private institution, but a private institution founded in a very, you know, historical legacy of racism and capitalism and, uh, forces of, and, and the whole educational system as, as a whole is a capitalist system of sorting people, which is usually done around all kinds of racist and, um, and classes sort of norm. So in terms of that, I feel like I always have had to negotiate what it means to work for and be in an institution, not of it, right? And and I think I struggle and it's not something I ever resolve, right? So sometimes I'm like, I don't want to have anything to do with the institution. I'm just going to do my thing over here and offer, do whatever I need so I don't get fired. Um, and then other times I'm like, but this institution is bringing harm to some of these young people. So I got to create spaces here that are at least a respite. Right. Um, uh, and so then I build a major that I think will provide a, a safer space for certain, for students who feel marginalized in this institution. Um, and then I get caught up in being a director and of a program and now I'm of the, and so I struggle with that sort of balance always. Um, but I think for me, it was also a conscious decision because I came to a point where I had been working in primarily black and brown K-12 schools as a white man and recognizing that the work I had to do for racial justice uh, involved really speaking to white people. 
And so I chose uh, particularly a predominantly white institution that had a, a, a voiced commitment to social justice that is, resides in a, a predominantly poor, uh, you know, probably the, the most racially diverse community in Worcester. And so, um, and yet it's educating teachers to teach in these communities and 90% of the people going through their MAT program are white. So on one level, I'm working institutionally to try to change the way they approach who gets in and who gets excluded. Um, and, and while I do that, I'm also, I hope, helping people think about what does it mean to be white in this country, and particularly what does it mean to be a white educator or a white person working on behalf of racial and social justice. I've heard some um, other academic activists talk about kind of internal work as well as external work in their social justice mission. So it sounds like that's a lot of what you're talking about is kind of turning that activist lens on the inside to your act- academic colleagues and trying to change both of what both of you have mentioned, these quite oppressive systems that exist within academia. Talking about balance, um, Eric, I'm going to go to you for this one. Unfortunately, activism is not something that is rewarded in the traditional academic career progression pathway. How are you balancing that work with what does traditionally get you accolades and awards and attention within academia? I mean, on one level, I feel like I'm lucky to be at Clark and that, well, there's problems with it, but I want to frame it. Like I, I had a friend and colleague who was at a large... Research One institution, and when he first started, he was told, you know, he was like, oh, you're one of those kind of academics who wants to do social justice in the community, and he was like, yeah, exactly. She's like, that's not going to work here. And, um, you know, so, so I've had colleagues who are explicitly told that. I think at Clark, I sometimes encounter the opposite problem, right, that there's this, like, notion there's this really white savior mentality here, right, of we're, you know, Clark has a motto, challenge convention, change the world. So I, they, have, they highlight stuff. I mean, I almost had to un- end a whole community project I was working on because they wanted to do an article. It was a, a critical uh, media literacy and film production program that I was doing with young people. And they want to do an article about it at Clark. So I said, well, go talk to the youth in the program. They're the ones who do all the work. They make the films. They do it all. So they interview all the young people. And then I read the story, and it's basically like, Professor de Molinaire is, you know, going into Maine South and saving these, you know, it's like really horrific. Um, the people I was working with were like, what the hell, Eric? You know, like, <laughs> and I was like trying to squash the story. So I, we modified it a lot. But, you know, so on that front, like Clark has, you know, so Clark was not against me doing community-based work, um, even if they didn't understand it. And even if they're epistemological stance was this notion of like Clark going into the community and saving it and they do this I mean it's like really troubling to even hear the admissions spiel about how Clark tries to recruit students because they are sort of fostering this kind of like um, savior mentality even as they recruit and so working to try to undermine some of that has been challenging Um, but on one on the other level like I've been afford it you know i know other institutions struggle like you can't get tenure if you co-author with 
teachers or community folks or students in high schools and stuff like that. And I haven't had that problem as much here. Maybe that's because I'm not at a sort of high level research one institution. Yeah, like you say, in one way, it's it's uh, helpful that you're at an institution that even if they do kind of turn this into a marketing slogan, does at least tell themselves that they have this as part of their core mission. And you are perhaps able to leverage that a little bit to go out and actually do do that community-based work. Colette, how are you finding it in, in terms of balancing stuff? And you've mentioned the fact that you're um, a single mother, so you've got lots of stuff to balance with your academic responsibilities and then your community-based work? You know, I, I, it's interesting, this question, and I, I haven't thought about it enough to really be able to answer, but I know a lot of folks have been pushing back on this notion of balance, and so I, I haven't, again, I haven't thought a lot about it, so I don't want to speak to it, but I, I just want to name that. Um, you know, I think some of this has to do with where we are in our careers. I think when I was a junior scholar... And I was doing my four-year review and having a conversation with my chair at the time. He was like, you know, essentially you have to have two publications in peer-reviewed journals a year or you need to have a monograph by the time you get to tenure. And at my four-year review, I probably had in total maybe like two chapters and maybe two articles. But, you know, uh, I should have had eight peer-reviewed. You know, I hadn't, you know, there's the unwritten word, you know, rules of academia. And so we had literally never had that conversation before. Um, I was in a program with Carrie and Rockmore, which I recommend to everybody. And they were like, have explicit conversations because there are a lot of assumptions that everyone thinks that you know. And so that explicit conversation made me kind of pause and think. And really what I'd been doing with that previous four years, and this is when Eric and I actually started writing about um, what resulted in the book, um, I had been working with community organizations. I've been um, youth organizations, after school programs, doing a lot of work with students who were wanting to do projects and really asking like, you know, what does it mean to make a project of a people in a community, right? So like really kind of pushing back against that town gown relationship that Eric is talking about, like the town is the lab for the gown, you know, kind of a thing. And that was really that and, and, you know, living what I hope was like a healthy life with my daughter was, you know, all consuming. And I compared that with, you know, the senior scholars in my department who was chair at the time. And I was like, well, you know, I know, I know, I know for a fact that that person is not doing any of that. And that the work that I had been doing now it was being put in my face as that's not going to count. Just to be clear, <laughs> you're now behind because no one is really going to be adding that to your, you know, maybe we can put it in service, but there really isn't a place for it in service because service is coming to meetings or, you know, uh, leading, you know, some policy, something or other that I just couldn't, I don't think really, well, I was going to say I couldn't care less about, but honestly, I don't think anybody could care less about. Um, and so it really felt very much like in conflict, right? The it, and, and also, you know, when you're working with community organizations, those community organizations are populated by people, <laughs> just like the institutions are populated by people. And so relationships are built and relationships don't work on my calendar and time and relationships don't end when some kind of project that the partnership was working on ends. Right. And so you're there are lots of relationships. You're at the grocery store, you run into somebody. What was going to be like a quick five minute in and out is like a one hour because you're chatting. Right. Like you just <laughs> you're just chatting. 
And so there are just lots of ways that I think the dynamic is set up to be in conflict very much so between, um, you know, so-called activism work, you know, partnerships with other folks to really kind of imagine a liberate, you know, a liberated future and the things that the institution has said are important, that you're sitting on these committees, that you're showing up to these meetings, that you're teaching these, you know, whatever. You're publishing in, you know, very particular journals. And so anyway, so I, you know, I had to shift, but that didn't mean that all of a sudden you tell your, the folks that, with whom you're partnered, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to continue this because I need to finish these publications real quick. Like, so now it just feels like your work has expanded. So I, I think part, no, not I think, I know that part of the reason Eric and I, you know, along with Kaisa Nygreen and Andrea uh, Dernis and Enrique Sepulveda, like we all started having conversations about like this push and pull that we were experiencing and, and maybe I think at the time a little bit of stress and we were younger then. So <laughs> our kids were younger then. And, you know, so there was a lot going on um, generally. And so uh, the writing came out of that. But I think now as a senior scholar, now that we're both, you know, full, it feels a little bit different. Like, yes, there are things I need to do in places I need to be. And I, I think, and, you know, I think I kind of show up half, like just half my brain is there, but it's, I'm also thinking about other things because at the end of the day, I'm like, I know this is important to the people who are here. And I think it's also not that important to the people here. And so there's like a, a, a redistribution of my energy and a redistribution of my concern in a way that I didn't, you know, advancing in, as a senior scholar versus junior scholar, I, I get to say that doesn't matter. And that power to say that doesn't really matter or to try and make sure that for junior scholars, I'm going to tell you right now, that doesn't really matter. Let me take care of that. Or, let, you know, why don't you focus on this? Like there's redistribution that can happen so that it's not really there. You can't balance something that should never be in the equation in the first place. That meeting about that policy, just it shouldn't be in the equation at all. Right. Like if the institution itself was socially and righteously just, then we're not really talking about how to squeeze the most labor out of a human being. Right. And so that, and that's what those meetings really are about. It's about like, how do we squeeze more labor and more, pro, you know, so that we can have greater profit over here. And that that meeting should just never exist. And so now, you know, like it, it's a, a silly thing that we're talking about, honestly. And the reason I'm showing up and the reason other people are showing up is to make sure that the conversation we hope goes in the right direction so that we're honoring people and their labor. Um, but in the meantime, there are these junior scholars who really need to, you know, need to get tenure. And I, I get the importance of that, of course. Right. Um, so I, I think it's a little bit different. So, I mean, as, as a senior scholar, I'm doing, I'm getting to do, I'm privileged to do a lot of work that is only kind of tenuously associated with the academy. And I don't think about it so much as like, oh no, where am I going to find the time? I'm just like, that's where I'm going to put my time in the years that I have left to give to this, you know, so-called institution. Like this is where it's going to be. And so, uh, I, I think it also matters where people are in their career and how much yeah. power they have to say yes or no. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could I just piggyback on that too? Um, I, I also think, you know, part of the reason I hang out with Colette and others is because they help me see all the false assumptions that I have. Um, and so I'm, I was work, I was, it was after I got tenure, but I wish I had had the conversation with John Saltmarsh before tenure, but he was like, why don't you have all these films that the, the, the youth did with you on your CV? Why don't you have, like, writing a, a proposal for a new school 
on your CV? Like, why do we, and for whatever reason, I felt like this was the academic work. This was what goes on my CV. And all this other work was kind of my activist work. And, and academic and activism were like these two separate worlds. And I think part of what, and maybe it's what I'm hearing from Colette now, is that there's, you know, I'm going to do this work, and that is going to be my academic work too, right? And, um, and we'll find ways to make it reach different audiences. And so, you know, I think about the book that Colette just put out, right? It's a sort of a collection of the work she's been doing with a bunch of folks for a while. Um, and, I, and it's powerful and profound. And, you know, even when we started writing the book, The Activist Academic, I mean, I felt like it wasn't going to be, we didn't, I wasn't thinking we were going to publish it, right? For me, that was, it was catharsis. It was like trying to make sense of what's, what am I doing? And, I, and honestly, it was like I was fearful of being co-opted by this ivory tower and thinking that I'm doing real change work, but, but fooling myself. You know, I had that message from Gramsci, you know, where he's like, most academics think they're not part of the system, but they actually are. And so um, I was like trying to just make sure I was being honest with myself. Um, and then it was, I think it was Colette who was like, well, let's just put this piece in for a conference. And I was like, okay. And then we just, and then, we, and then Colette was like, let's do it as a dialogue. And I was like, what, we're writing a play? Like, how is that academic? And, um, and so, you know, the whole time it was just trying to like unlearn all these kind of assumptions that I had made that, you know, and not to say that it isn't like, it took us a while to find someone willing to publish the book because it wasn't written in a way that, I think a lot of people think of as academic, but, um, you know, and that, so yeah, how do we mess with, with all of these notions of whose tools, right, to, to quote Audre Lorde, right, and, um, and what, tool, what, what do we assume will, will change or transform? So did, did you ever put the, the work that you did with students and the activist work, has that ever been recognized within an academic context? I'm just wondering if there was some sort of kind of slow dismantling from the inside out if you, and also with this book, if you kind of shoehorned this into it and kind of forced people to see that there is a real value in this and, and even scholarship in this that the academia, that the academy could value and should value. Um, I mean, I, so the people who, are in my department and maybe like the people on the committee on personnel. I don't know if they ever looked at any of the films or even read the book. Um, you know, so I think I was lucky that people were, who are on my review committees. So it, I put it on my CV. I don't know what that meant. I didn't send it out. I didn't send films out to people, but there were links to some of them. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, I, I don't know who all did my review. I mean, but they they were the book at least was part of my review but not necessarily films but it's a good question but I think I put it in there almost just to push against right um and so I don't know what it takes to actually start shifting that balance let's move on to talk about the book the activist academic engaged scholarship for resistance hope and social change Colette what's been um what's been the response to to the book for you from your colleagues or, or readers who may have gotten in touch? Um, the ones that really kind of resonated with me, and so maybe that's why they stuck with me, are the, the, the feedback that I've heard from graduate students who are at that place or, or early, super early career uh, scholars um, who are at that place of trying to figure out, 
you know, <laughs> have they like somehow sold their soul, you know, to the institutional devil? I don't know. Or they're just like, how am I going to like, how am I going to do this work that matters? And particularly those who were K-12 teachers or they were community activists, they're like, this does not feel good. Like I have all this time to think and write, but you know, there's so much that's happening over here and I should, you know, I should be over here, but yet I'm here. And and do I belong here, right? Like, you know, a bunch of imposter syndrome, which it's not really imposter syndrome. The, the institution is sending them messages all the time that they don't really belong here, right? Um, and so uh, for them to, what I'm, I'm hearing two things. One is uh, it felt good to read something that wasn't kind of jargon laden and written as if somebody was daring them to understand it and prove that they belonged because they could understand what they were reading. Um, and the second being like to see themselves in it, right? Like uh, I totally feel that way. I totally felt that way, particularly parenting adults who are like, you know, I just don't know how I'm going to do this with. I mean, one of the things that will unfortunately always stick with me was um, a conversation with somebody who was retiring uh, right at the very beginning of my career, who was a single mom. And, you know, the she came over and was like, you know, prepare to only have a couple hours of sleep because that's what it takes to get tenure here. I don't want you to think you're going to get by just because you're a single mom and people are going to take it easy on you. But, you know, you're going to have to put the kids to bed and then be up all night writing. And then, you know, only to find out later that that white woman hadn't published anything. had gotten tenure under a different set. Of, right. But that was that a choice of welcoming was you don't really belong here and you're going to have to work twice as hard as if I didn't already know that as a black person, <laughs> you know, twice as hard to make it. And then to, to have parenting adults who are reading our book to not just see how we're balancing it, if balance was even achieved, but like that, you know, my daughter came with me to talks at night and, you know, was drawing in the corner or was sitting, uh, you know, one of my like favorite memories of her, you know, coming to conferences was sitting under a table with Michelle Fine talking about, uh, a, you know, she was reading a Ramona Quimby book. And, you know, here's, uh, you know, Professor Fine is talking about, you know, participatory action research. And then she spots my daughter sitting under this table. She'd made this like little kind of clubhouse. She had all her blankets and her stuffies and her books. And then Michelle just like crawled under on her knees and they were like talking about Ramona Quimby, I think it was. Um, you know, that my daughter belonged at that conference just as well as I belonged at that conference. And she got to make space for herself. She didn't have to like tuck away and, you know, in a corner and be hidden. But she could like, she created this like little palace for herself under a table that she found. Or, you know, when she was really little, I had her in a baby Bjorn while you know, I'm talking at, at a conference. Like I'm not, you know, like, you know, she's not to be tucked away and hidden as if, you know, like a, a secret or people saying, you know, don't have a baby until, you know, you've gotten tenure. Like somebody, you know, like an institution gets to have an opinion on women's timetable of when they imagine they wanted to start a family. Um, and so I think there's something about the book being written as we're living life and, seeing kids present in that and seeing each other present in that as colleagues who are struggling and seeing, you know, the questions that are really truly coming up for us. Um, those two points, I think, are the, the pieces of feedback that have really been important um, to me anyways. And, and also, I'm sorry, there's a third thing. I said there were only two, but one more is um, I think it also 
means that I've gotten to talk to people who would have assumed because of the, the you know, hierarchy and, and academia that they shouldn't be talking to, couldn't be talking to. But like people have come up and been like, oh, you know, one of my favorite parts was you and your lemon baby bunt cakes, which was like a thing for me for many years, sadly enough. <laughs> like I just couldn't go into a Barnes and Nobles and not come out with like five or six of them in my in my person. So um, like there's this like sense of like I'm approachable now. Right. Like I know you because I've read, you know, some of the silly things that you did and you're a very silly person. Um, so that that's been a really nice part of coming out of this. It sounds so. like in addition to providing hopefully some really practical, hopeful tools for people who want to do this work, it also injects a certain level of humanity to you guys as scholars that is perhaps missing in a lot of conversations around this and, and scholarship as a conversation. I mean, it's interesting that you say use the word tools. Um, you know, yeah, sure. I mean, I think we made. I hope we made visible some of those rules that, and and also some like very specific things that you could do that people don't necessarily teach you to do when you're an academic. I do hope that came out of it. But I think also the kind of humanizing of the, you know, an academic at the early part of their career with children and, you know trying to just make sense of how they're going to hold on to their identity as an activist or, or as somebody who believes that you have to act in order to make change. You can't just, not that writing is not a, a, a tool of change, but that you want to act in a very particular way, right? Your theory of action is very particular, um, that that can also be welcome in academia. And I just want to piggyback on that too, because I think I totally agree that the comments that I've gotten the most, and I think with Colette on conversations, has been about kind of this humanization. And I, but I also think when we say that, we always think about the struggle, right? Having kids, like doing all these things. And that was definitely intentional in having that in there. But I also think we don't see the spaces of joy, of teasing and laughter, uh, of fun, of um and and for me the other piece that i think we were trying to also showcase is our own learning and growth right and you know bourdieu talks about how to like most research is written after you've figured stuff out and then and then you write it like you knew this all along and we never let and then it, that creates this imposter syndrome from everybody else because we're all like going hmm, i'm not sure what do i do how do i make sense of this writing is hard and it's messy and i don't know what i really think and and so trying to get into that process of learning and the conversations we had to push each other and, um, you know, that, that that window, I think, is missing uh, from a lot of academic writing. And, in, and for me, it was intimidating because all these people are like so brilliant. I can't ever be like that. I'm too messy of a thinker. Um, and so kind of letting people into those processes, uh, both the struggles, but also the, the joy of learning and figuring stuff out and even the joy in conflict at times, right? And like, no, that's not right. Or, you know, and how do we work through that? Um, and then friendship, you know, we, and so we looked at a lot of, you know, even people talking about sort of friendship as a form of scholarship and what that means and, you know, so. Can you guys give me maybe two each, three each? I'm not going to limit you too much, but um, what sort of advice would you give to somebody 
Uh, you guys come from are in similar fields, but I'm wondering if if this advice could apply to anybody working in any discipline within academia. What sort of advice would you give them if they wanted to be an activist academic and they're they're really struggling to figure it out? Um, wow, that's a big question. Um, my advice is, you know, um, listen a lot. I think as professors, we're taught to profess and to speak and to write and there's this uh, sense of authority that comes with being an author right and so you have to almost act like you have all this and and so you know one of the things that it took me a while to learn was like I didn't lose my legitimacy and authority by being humble and and admitting when I was unsure I don't understand something or I was wrong right um, and then for me uh, the the thing that I'm still working to learn and stuff but um, is that uh, you know part of what I I've done a lot of work with my students both undergraduate and graduate is to sort of think about your own subjectivity um, in different ways. I think with the positivist nature of a lot of academia, people think their subjectivity is always a space of blindness. And while it is a space of blindness, it's also your space of brilliance, right? It's your lens, it's your perspective, which might limit the way you see the world, but sort of really trying to embrace your subjectivity, recognize that what you come from is limiting, but it also gives you an angle that maybe others don't have and don't be uh, afraid of that right um and then i think just the human connections I, in the end what i've come to realize is um that all of this work is deeply tied to love my own entry into social justice was was through love right i was a teacher of students who were dealing with all kinds of stuff and because I cared about them I got involved in their lives and then that got me involved in all kinds of injustices that were happening um, and so like you know think about you know that that relational component I think is huge for me yeah I mean I think uh, that last part is where I would jump in I think if I were to <laughs> to give advice <laughs> but I really do not want to <laughs> Who am I to give such advice? Uh, but let's just say, let's just say I would. Let's just say I would. <laughs> I would say, um, you know, think about, you know, who do you care about most? You know, who do you love? Who are you com in community with? Um, who do you want to listen to? You know, for whom do you want the world to change? And you know, there's this like, I love everybody and you know, I care about everybody and, you know, whatever. I'm a, you know, I care about black people. <laughs> I care about my family. <laughs> and yes, you know, my heart is big enough to also care about the person who tripped on the street, you know, regardless of gender, race, whatever. Yes, I will go help that person. But who I care about are the folks who seemingly nobody else cares very little about at all. Right. <laughs> and so that's to whom I'm writing. And so I'm going to, I'm going to monitor, I'm going to use language as if I'm speaking to someone that I know and speaking to someone that I love. And, and I'm going to be in community with folks in the, you know, with people who I love and people who, with whom I care. And so if I were to give advice, it would be do research, do your work, do your writing, do your teaching, uh, as an expression of love, you know, with and for 
that group of people? And it's a question that we've been asking a lot in our in our school of education, right? If if we're asking them to do these like really, you know, ridiculously outdated things like write a literature review, right? Like if you are asking someone to write a literature, like for whom, right? <laughs> Who's the audience? If it's if I'm the only one that's going to read it because I'm your, you know, on your committee, that seems like a really uh, incredible waste of time, right? And so like, you know, for whom are, are you doing this work? They should, you should do it in a format where folks can, it'll benefit them. You should do it if, you know, is it supposed to be in dialogue? Then do it in dialogue and record it. Do, don't do it in some, you know, so-called traditional dominant way because that traditional dominant was not determined by you. And so I've just been, I've been thinking about that a lot. And so that's the, that's where I'll, I'll land today. But ask me tomorrow, it might be something different. But that's what it is today. We'll have to give you a call tomorrow then. <laughs> <laughs> to get even more advice. Eric and Colette, thank you so much for your time today. And I will link to the book so that people can learn more about it and learn more about the, the great work that you've done on activism and academia. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. This is a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Always good to be in conversation. Well, if Colette and Eric are activists who became academics, John McKendrick, a professor in social justice at Glasgow Caledonian, is an academic who became an activist. After a straightforward path from an undergraduate degree to a PhD to a full-time job, it was an unexpected placement in a criminology department that led him to do research to help tackle poverty. John, thanks so much for joining us on the Times Higher Education podcast today. We are talking about activism in academia, um, of which you are, are part of. But I'd like to start a little bit just talking about um, what your story is and how, how you got into academia before and if you were perhaps doing any sort of social justice work before you chose this as a career. Sure, yeah. Um, how did I get into academia? Well, maybe like Peter Pan, the, the boy who never grew up and ne never escaped. So straight from school, and in, in Scotland that was fifth year, so it was the earliest chance I could leave school straight into university. Four years at university, straight into a PhD, um, finished the PhD, straight into a research job, a research job straight into lecture and, and, and so on. Wow. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that makes it seem as if it was a, the grand plan. It was very Yeah, just a career path that no, doesn't really exist on. anymore. But, but also I think that it might sound a little bit odd but there's maybe a bit of selfishness to that as well if I'm honest about it, how, how it worked out so I mean I, I became a dad at 19 um, in the third year of my undergraduate degree I became a dad and I think everybody around about me was expecting that once the degree was finished you'd go straight into a job but instead what I went into is three years of postgraduate study and um, so it was three years of you know just scraping by again so mm. There was probably a degree of selfishness that I did there that, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Now, mm. Ultimately, long term, I seen that would open doors. Um, but I think at that, that stage when I was making those decisions, there was a degree of, no, this is what I want to do. This is mm. what I enjoy. This is what I might be good at. And we'll see how it goes. So a little bit of selfish driven interest there and, and no background of social justice work beforehand. Um, certainly interested in politics, certainly had my views about how the world should be. But 
I wasn't a, uh, an activist in terms of you know belonging to a political party or having a political uh, a political issue um, that I was committed to and part of. Hmm. So, you know, what, what was the, interest in justice? What was the discipline that you did your PhD in? Uh, geography, and again, it was a, it was a, a kind of driven interest there. You know, when I was when I was starting out looking at school about what I might do, then I, I considered law. Uh, I was interested in, in issues, legal issues, but I thought if I'm going to spend four years as it is in Scotland doing something, I want to do something I enjoy, and I enjoy geography. And it seemed as good a reason as any why I would why I would do that, as well as the particular type of geography I wanted to do. Um, you know, I was interested in physical geography actually when I, when I went to university. Didn't last long. Uh, very quickly changed that, that interest. But you know that that was always it was what I wanted to do, what I was interested in. And then for the, the the PhD beyond that, again I began to get interested in particular issues. And again, it was what I wanted to do. Um, and I was very fortunate, of course, that what I wanted to do was, was open to me, and, and I got the scholar the, the the studentship for the PhD um, that I applied for first time. Mm. So, so tell us a little bit about how you kind of because you're a lecturer in social justice now in Glasgow Caledonian. So tell us how that how that happened, going from a very clear focus on geography to this evolution now to focus on social justice. Yeah, yeah, and I. My first four years in my academic career were in a geography department, University of Manchester. Fantastic department, fantastic people, really good times. But at the, as I moved towards the end of that four years, and I still had a contract, I had two years left in a four-year contract. It was a, it was a decent contract I had at that time. Again, it was family circumstances. I needed a bigger house, if I'm honest about it, and um, I didn't, I couldn't afford in the salary I was on to move. So I had to look for something more permanent to give me the security to make that house move. And hopefully with a slightly bigger salary at the time, if I, if I could possibly negotiate that. Wasn't looking to move back to Scotland, really happy in the, the northwest of England at the time. But the opportunity that, that arose was one back in Scotland and, and that took me back there. But that was in a social sciences department. So I went from a human geographer and, you know, absolutely loved all aspects of human geography and we had a great department that we we talked about many different issues a, a reading group every week you know so you're looking at different aspects of geography um a, a, a kind of multidisciplinary seminar series where it was much about physical geography as it was human and i moved from that into social sciences department had a token geographical contribution but i kind of liked that you know that to me was an opportunity because i, I like the idea then of of um, sharing geography with a broader audience, you know, thinking about the, the importance of a geographical perspective with a broader range of, of social scientists. And I, and I probably tended, although I love geography, I probably tended to view myself more as a social scientist who happened to approach things from a geographical perspective. So it was a good fit. And mm. then through time, uh, the geography went in that degree. Um, criminology was deemed to be more attractive than geography. So the, the, the deal was out went geography and in came criminology. And I, I kind of plundered on doing interdisciplinary social science in the undergraduate degree. And my research was much more applied. You know, it was much more policy oriented. So the mm. kind of title of social justice was one choosing. You know, and I was made professor. I had a choice to choose what I, I wanted to title myself. And I chose not to do it by a discipline. So not a professor of geography. It wouldn't have been a good fit where I am. It wouldn't have made sense. But also equally, I was probably unhappy to call myself a professor of sociology or a professor of social policy, which I think would have been a bit misleading. So the, the, the title that I chose then was professor of social justice, which I think very much reflects what I'm interested in, both in my teaching, uh, but also in my research. Mm. Tell us a little bit about what um, activism looks like for you. 
I mean, we've talked about this a little bit and it's not necessarily standing on a picket line with a placard. Yeah. What does it look like for you? Yeah, that, that's a sensitive issue just now about pickets and placards. But um, no, activism for me UK. is not very much that. It's a, it's a traditional approach to knowledge, I think, in a way that I almost see myself as a, a you know the, the in-service of society. It's about providing that knowledge that others can do something with. It, it, of course, the issue I'm interested in primarily is tackling poverty. Um, and there are many people at many levels, be it senior levels of government, be it community activists, a whole range of geographically defined or community of interest defined populations that are interested in that topic. Also, I think there are other groups that are, don't seem to be interested in the topic but want to find out about it. So there's a real demand out there for that type of information. And I, I kind of believe that my talents are best placed in being that bridge, that bridge between the academic world generating the ideas, not all the solutions, that would be incredibly arrogant to think that's the case, but certainly been able to put things in a broader context and those that are making a difference in their day-to-day -day practice, but mm -hmm. sometimes needing that perspective that steps back from their day-to-day -day practice to understand, you know, other others that are interested in it, other perspectives on the problem. So a big part of my work is, is sharing that knowledge from the academy with a wide range of other groups. And I give a, an awful lot of presentations, you know, a whole manner of different groups invited to give, give along and give a, a keynote presentation. You know, on the, the, the kind of diary list just now, there's a, a housing um, sector in Scotland coming along to give a, a, a keynote on a Saturday morning to the housing sector. The, 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 the last one I gave was to Sirenians, an organisation mm -hmm generally committed to tackling homelessness, but a whole range of other social problems, given one to uh, early nurture groups um, and one local authority that asked me to come along and give a talk to those that are involved in nurturing within education, community education more recently as well. So it's a, it's a broad range of groups out there that are interested to find out more about tackling poverty issues. Uh, and I'm very happy to be that bridge. But, mm. but some of the activism, interestingly, is also on the doorstep and looking in. Um, so I'm interested in poverty proofing the university. Uh, and I think that, well, primarily what, what anybody's work that's researching poverty has got to be about is trying to make a difference or supporting those that are making a difference in wider society. I think there's also a lot that we can do to improve our own practice. So I'm also interested in activism within my own institution and within the academy more generally about thinking about issues of access thinking about the hidden barriers that, that we inadvertently create for our students and indeed for, for our staff as well, mm. we're going to have a more equitable um, working environment. And there was an example that you, you shared with me about the free breakfast that the university was extending to students and you turned that into a research project. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure, students and staff actually that was approached mm. at the Kukunur Institution. So I I got a, a, a message on a Saturday morning in November from a friend of mine saying that he, he was going to turn up at the university for his free breakfast and I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Quickly did a, a search and found out that my university had just announced that it was giving free breakfast from the Monday uh, to students and staff. Um, and I thought, this well, is for the, uh, the cost of living crisis that they're experiencing. Hmm. Absolutely. So, and we're not the only institution to do that in the UK. Hmm. There are a number are doing it. More colleges than universities. I think that's interesting. Uh, many universities are doing it, and we're all doing it in different ways. Some of it's one day a week. You know, some of it's two days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it's only for students. So, a whole different range of practices. But many universities are looking at this idea of to ameliorate cost of living issues, not to solve them, but to ameliorate them. Perhaps giving a free breakfast is a good contribution. So. My university makes this announcement. I hadn't heard anything about it. Uh, on the Saturday, having received that email from a friend, I, I pinged a note to uh, one of the, the, the pro-vice-chancellors 
and saying, are, are you evaluating this? He said, no, but it's an interesting idea. You know, would you be interested? And, you know, over the next couple of days, I put together a, a firm proposal. Um, he was delighted because that way, you know, we would have some intelligence, not just a nice idea, but is it an effective idea? Is mm. it doing what we wanted to do? Is it reaching who those that we want to reach? What's the wider impacts of it? And I, I was also fortunate, you know, I have to say a little bit fortunate that the, the time that this was happening, I also done a work placement module. So students as part of their degree studies in social science can elect in, in the third year to come and join my research unit and be researchers for a trimester. And what they do is they do applied research. Now, we were already doing a group project at the same time, but this was far too good an opportunity to pass up. So I, I quickly amended the, the work programme in the last few weeks of the trimester and got the students involved. We co-designed a survey, we administered a, a, a survey, and uh, we, we produced a report then that evaluated that free breakfast, an interim evaluation, because it runs through until the, um, the end of um, February, uh, in the mm. first instance anyway. Um, so we, we, we use the skills that we have then to look at our own practice and think about, is that something that's effective? Um, and, you know, it was a good bit of work for the students to be involved with. Um, mm. And so it's it's that kind of <clears throat> internal looking at your own doorstep, as as you called it, to to really address this wider issue of poverty. But it's also being quite agile and responsive within your research and being able to to shift that with your students and your working group. You're right, you know, and that that module actually, the, the one that I talk at, I run it twice a year, I run it every trimester, um, so the students get the chance to do it twice a year, and it's one of the things that we're able to do, we're able to be very agile, we're able to, to shift that resource if, if a need arises and be responsive. Um, and even with, with my research unit, we, we have a, a one day a week post we give, and then some might see this as casualization. You know, we, we thought about it and see it's not casualization because this, this this one day a week post is pitched that somebody is pre-PhD. So we see it as a research development opportunity. We give somebody that's thinking about a research career, but is not quite sure if that's what they want to do, a chance to experience a research unit for a year. What we originally conceived the post would be for the students that are doing a master's degree. So rather than them flip burgers at McDonald's, we'd give them you know, the opportunity of working in a research unit um, to, to supplement their income. Uh, and that resource also means that we can be very agile over the course of the year and have done. And sometimes that involves, you know, you know, pro bono work where we, you know, an organization, small organization asks, like, can you help us out here with this information? And I can throw my time and the time of the, the, the research staff to provide that output that, that helps them in their work. So, for example, just one other example that coming up shortly, we'll, we'll, we'll um, direct some time to support some work in the city of Glasgow that are looking at um, single parents' access to higher education, further education. So mm. that, that will be a, a little bit of research that's going on. It's part of a bigger anti-poverty project in the city. But I said, look, do we know what others have said? Do we know what others have researched on the issue? And they're saying, well, no, we haven't done that review. I said, well, OK, let me see if I can get some resource that can provide that summary. I'm doing a rapid literature review. So we've got an evidence base to at least know what's happening elsewhere regarding single parents' access to further and higher education. So it's just mm -hmm. one example how we can be nimble. Um, yeah. And we see ourselves as but that's been responsive. You know, that it's interesting because you're not always leading the agenda. You know, you're responsive to somebody else's agenda. So it's a particular type of approach to your work perhaps not effective, you know, some might see that as actually not a good bit of career planning, you know, you're better taking control of you want and, uh, and, and putting together that agenda that takes you somewhere where you need to be. Mm. But I suppose I'm much more responsive, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. I, mm. I see that the skills and the time of the unit can work in the, the, the service of a, a, a wider client group out there. 
Yeah. And, and also that, yeah. that, that responsive approach kind of takes a, a, a bigger picture approach to these quite big issues that you're focusing poverty, food insecurity, it all feeds into each other. And you're working with such a huge range of groups, NGOs, organizations, government, like the local and national level. Whenever you're thinking about this work, are there any specific aims that you think about either on a, a macro level with a specific research project or on bigger stuff obviously eradicating poverty is impossible for one person to do but are there any specific aims that you're kind of reaching for and that you'll think that you've like succeeded in your activism if if x happens eradicating poverty is impossible my goodness such a pessimistic view i'm sorry <laughs> i meant impossible for one person to do i don't think it's impossible uh, for humanity excellent <laughs> recovery sir excellent <laughs> recovery. here in scotland we've got that 2030 commitment where we know we have by legislation in 2017 committed to eradicate child poverty in scotland now have i got a bigger goal then and i think one of the goals that we have is trying to work towards achieving that ambition and it's a proper collective effort mm. it's bringing together academics with uh, the leading organizations uh, in tackling poverty in scotland and civil servants and, and all manner of other public bodies but you know public health scotland local health boards the improvement service all of them working towards that goal so i, I think a, a goal that i have is making a contribution towards that national effort of eradicating as defined in, in the legislation child poverty by by 2030 that's certainly a goal but also a goal i've got is, is trying to drink and develop that next generation talent you know, mm. i'm acutely aware that you know i'm getting older and, and i think as you as you've spent a lot of time on zoom and, and teams in the last few years you look at yourself much more than you ever done that i'm getting you know i can see lines that i never knew existed beforehand <laughs> and i want the next generation of of anti-poverty academics to be given the chance for their talents to flourish and that's why we do the research development post that's why we've done it for a few years that's why we have a work placement module at undergraduate level that's why that when we're, we're talking to organizations we're, we're demonstrating to them the importance of research and providing opportunities for, for others to get involved in research so i think a, a definite goal that i've got is to be replaced you know have somebody mm. else that's, that's going to continue to do that type of work that myself and Stephen Sinclair, my, the, the co-director, are, are currently doing just now. The time's running out, you know, in terms of an academic career. I've maybe got 15 more years of this to go. And I think we, we certainly need this type of work to continue because un, unfortunately, I think, as you suggested, poverty won't be eradicated. It won't go away in, in a magic wave of a wand in seven years' time. There'll be mm. a need for academics to continue to make this contribution. Mm. So I think trying to ensure then that there's a broad basis of people that are doing this work in Scotland is something I'm really keen on. Mm. Unfortunately, within the academic career ladder, however, this type of work isn't really recognized or rewarded. So how are you balancing all of this great work that you're doing of, of being a bridge between academic knowledge and, and these community groups with the more traditional ac academic work that is favored rewarded i'm thinking of citation indexes published research how are you balancing those two yeah i mean the, the flippant response is that's what evenings and weekends are for but um you know the, and that is a tough balancing act and I, I think it's sometimes in my academic career i've beaten myself up about it you know beating myself up about the fact that i've not produced as many academic publications as i could have um, you know, but I mean, if I think about this year, I mean, last week I was uh, over co-launching a book that I'd done with, with, with colleagues uh, north and south of the border, uh, looking at children, education and geography, not on poverty, but back to that in, uh, interest about, you know, um, what, what 
education and what geography are about in a, in a very general sense. I'm, I'm organising an academic and practitioner panel. I'm chairing that for an international play association conference that's coming to Glasgow later on this year. This morning, I, I, an email pinged through from one of my colleagues at Glasgow to say a paper that we, 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 we co-authored has now been approved and it's getting published. I do manage to, to keep it going, but, and it is, it is undoubtedly the case, that a decision has been made by me that that's not going to be the only thing that I do. I'm not only going to be interested in that highly cited academic paper or that all of my writing time is given over to that. Uh, and it's a balance that I'm comfortable with. You know, it's a balance that I think that I've realised where my talents are. Uh, and you know what I'm comfortable doing, what I like to do. I like the mix. I like that mix of academic work, but also like to do the practitioner work and write for a very different audience in a very different way. Um, and I like to make those contributions to policy debates. Um, and that means that I can't have as much time otherwise as I might have, you know, mm. either seeking the large academic funds or writing those academic papers. But I, ha I have, it has frustrated me from time to mm. time because I enjoy that. And I've In terms of career progression. I've, you know, I've been lucky. I, I think the type of institution I, I'm in has acknowledged that this is valuable work. Mm. It, it sees itself then as being an institution, and we've got a strap line here at Caledonian, for the common good, the university for the common good. And I think perhaps in the institution I, I'm in, it's been easier for me to carve out that career than it would have been elsewhere. I do think if I was elsewhere, I would have been writing academic papers. I would have been going for the big conference grants. I'd have been more interested in you know, international academic collaborations than, than I've been able to do. So I don't think it necessarily this is the only place where I could have thrived in my career. But I think in the institution I'm in, particularly with the type of subject matter that I'm interested in, then I think it's been just a coming together, a circumstance that's meant mm. that this is a type of academic career that, that I've carved out. But mm. I, I wouldn't pretend that there aren't compromises to be made. I wouldn't pretend that it's meant that you've not been able to do everything that you could have done in, in, in terms of academic and advancing ideas. And that has mm. been something of frustration for me, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. Another aspect of this that uh, is another kind of competing interest of your time is parenting and, and having a family, which will be something else that a lot of perhaps potential academic activists are having to balance. Where does that play in and how are you able to to work that in? Sure, and uh, grandparenting. I, I'm fortunate yeah. enough to have two grandchildren as well now, um, a, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Wow. Um, it's difficult. They're no use pretending about it. I probably um, have not spent as much time with my kids as, as, as I could have, like anything. You know, if you spend a lot of time in work, it gives you less time to do other aspects. I mean, you probably need to ask my kids for the honest opinion in that. I, I, I would argue the case that I'm, I'm a good dad. Um, they might see things differently. Um, but my, my daughter phoned up this morning um, and asked if you know, there's any chance that I could take my, my one of my grandkids because she was taking the older grand, uh, I will be taking my older grandson to a Taekwondo event and she didn't want the wee one to be stuck in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a hall for four hours. So I'm having him for four hours in a, in a week on Sunday. So I do manage to find the time. And mm. of course, it is brilliant when you do because you realise how unimportant you are. You know, there's nothing better than spending time, particularly with a young kid. Where, you know, you, you think what you do is the most important thing in the world, and you know, you quickly realise it's not. And there's it's no interest whatsoever in your job. I, I love that. I love being put in my place. Or my mm -hmm. other, my my, my uh, youngest daughter, 
we were on a careers night uh, last night over at our, our school and an information night about subject choices and then a careers night beyond that. I mean, she is adamant, absolutely adamant that um, she will not be doing a job sent a computer, which is both what her mum and dad do. So while I will, you know, maybe say, ah, oh, this parent's fantastic and it's great and I'm a great parent, I'm, maybe the fact my youngest daughter says, I don't want to be like my dad, I don't want to be like my mum, that maybe tells a different story. Um. What advice would you have for anyone else who who might want to look at their work with more of a, a social justice lens and might be struggling to to figure it out because of any of the numerous um, issues that we've talked about parenting, climbing the academic ladder, reaching those KPIs for success within an academic career? Any advice for them? Yeah, probably a kind of smorgasbord of different advice, you know, and then hopefully wouldn't be able to take it or leave it, though. I mean, one bit of advice is uh, for everybody, every single academic, there's a degree to which this is your responsibility. And I'm thinking there of creating the type of institutions that are truly open to all. Mm. So I think, you know, it's incumbent upon us to think about our everyday practices, academics, and make sure that what we are doing then is an inclusive environment we're working in now increasingly we're we quite rightly are thinking about that in terms of you know anti-racist curriculum uh, I think we've also got to think of that in terms of you know economic inequalities and access as well and, and I, if I'm honest I don't think we've done that well enough I think we've made a lot of assumptions about access to university uh, and mm. I think we need to be much more self-aware of the inadvertent barriers we create um, and I think we've got to change that. I think we need to truly make our, our institutions much more accessible places than they currently are. So one response to that question is you've got to do better, uh, or at least you've got to be um, scrutinise your own practice and make sure that you are doing right for all the possible candidates that, that they could encounter your work. But thinking about research, um, maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, I, I, it's not for everybody uh, and not everybody's got the skill set I think where activism is something that, that's right for them it might be the subject matter doesn't really lend itself to it mm. in terms of what you're interested in mm. uh, it might be even if the subject matter is it lends itself to activism it might be that your particular interest and skill set don't lead themselves to making an activist contribution in that field and again that's fine I do think if you're interested in social issues, though, I, I, um, to me, I think you have to be thinking about activism to some degree. You have to think about how what you're generating could be used. Now, that might be somebody else does it on your behalf. It might be that you're interested in working with the ideas, but somebody like me is that bridge and that's OK. But I think we still have to make sure that that happens. And I think we have to have people that are that bridge, that bridge between the the academic community and maybe the complex ideas and those that are able to translate those ideas into practice. So I think it's, it's incumbent upon the academy as a whole to make sure that activism is there. Um, but for individual academics, I think you need to know yourself and, what, and know what you want. And it's going to be easier for some people in some institutions. And, and part of that might be finding yourself in the right place that, that suits your talents. I think it's much easier to be an activist in the type of institution that I'm in. That's got mm. a very clear sense of itself about what it wants to be. Perhaps less so than than an, uh, an institution that's aspiring to be a, a world class research institution. And, and the, the activism in there would be a very different thing. To, 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 or certainly, it would have a very different fit with the university's mission compared to what I am. So I think you know. I want everybody to be uncomfortable in terms of reflecting on their own practice, but in terms of their own research, you know, find your feet, know yourself, know where your talents are. Um, but collectively as an academy, we must make sure that we have activism as a, uh, with the knowledge that we are generating. Hmm. John, thank you very much for that and for your time today. Thanks very much, Sarah. It's been lovely talking to you.
That's it for today's episode. Thank you to Colette, Eric, and John for joining us today. If you'd like to get in touch with an idea for the podcast or to join us, drop me an email, sarah.custer at timeshighereducation.com. We'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.